obscure reading from Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And he, as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. We all long to go home. We all long to go home. I'll Be Home for Christmas has become one of the most popular Holiday songs. The American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers named it the 10th most performed holiday song in the last century. I'll Be Home for Christmas was first recorded in 1943 by Bing Crosby, and it was originally written for soldiers overseas who longed to be home at Christmas. Now, the song, if you think about it, is written from the point of view of the soldier who's there overseas during World War II sending a a letter to his family. And in the message, he says, he's coming home, so prepare the holiday for him. He requests snow, mistletoe, and presents on the tree. And the song ends with a little bit of a melancholy note, because he says, I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. But it expresses for us that longing to be home. And I know some of you are already thinking, but Adam, you don't know my home. You don't know the home that I grew up in because some of you grew up in homes that were filled with violence or maybe they were filled with silence. Some of you grew up in homes 
and to stay home even elicits memories of abuse or addiction or harsh words or unresolved tension or unreconciled relationships. And you say, Adam, I actually have no desire to go home. And friends, I hear that. I hear that. And I know you have no desire to go to that home filled with tension and brokenness and strife. But I bet that there's still inside you somewhere a longing for a home, isn't there? A longing for a home, an idealized home. Maybe it's a home that you've never had, but yet for which you've always longed. It's a desire to go home. I mean, the home of your childhood might have been hell, and you have no desire to return there, but you can't shake the feeling there's something more. There's something that's more real, that's better, that's truly home. And you just want it. You long to go there to that place of acceptance. That place of belonging. That place of love. There's a part of every one of us, friends, that says, I'll be home for Christmas. We just want to go home. And friends, at Christmas we celebrate. We celebrate that because of God's great love for us, He's made it possible for us to go home. As we heard um, as we heard the smileys read as they lit the Advent candle, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent. It's the Sunday of love. And because of the great love that God has for us, He's made it possible for us to go home. And Joshua read for us a parable that admittedly seems like an odd choice for Christmas, doesn't it? I, I mean, why did we read this? There's, there's no angels. There's no shepherds. There's no miraculous birds. I did notice that there is a manger, though, a feeding trough in this one. But there's no newborn baby laid in this feeding trough, only food for pigs. So this parable might not be usual Christmas fare, but it, we read it this morning because this is a Sunday of love. And this parable, friends, reveals to us the great love of the Father. Now, the parable is also a really familiar parable. I've preached about it before. You've heard other sermons about it, other Sunday school lessons. You've read other studies about this famous parable. So some of what you're going to hear today is going to sound familiar, and that's okay. But don't let the familiarity of this parable, don't let the familiarity of the story and the teaching numb you to the awesomeness of God's love revealed in this parable. Don't let the familiarity with this story dull you to hear the clear invitation from God to come home and be home for Christmas. The parable that Joshua read for us this morning is actually the third. It's the third of three parables that Jesus delivers all in quick succession in Luke 15. Now, you see, like any joke, there are three parts to it. For example, friends, what is a pirate's favorite letter? Arr. What is a pirate's favorite restaurant? Arby's. And what is a pirate's favorite branch of the military? No, the Navy. See, in any good joke, there are two straightforward examples that establish the pattern, and then the third shatters the pattern and makes us laugh or gets our attention. And in Luke 15, the first two parables are setting up the third parable which Joshua read for us. So the third parable which Joshua read is the punchline. The first two parables are about a lost sheep and a lost coin. So they both involve a lost possession 
an extreme search, and both parables end with this lavish, ridiculous celebration when the lost is found. And these two shorter parables are the setup. They're the setup for the joke. They're the setup for the punchline of the third and final parable that Joshua read for us this morning. Traditionally, this third parable is called the prodigal son. Now, the English word prodigal literally means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. And as such, this has been called the prodigal son. Why? Because he took his father's inheritance, he took the inheritance from his father, and he wastefully, extravagantly spent all those resources freely. So we've traditionally called the younger son the prodigal son. However, author and pastor Tim Keller wrote a book called The Prodigal God. The Prodigal God. And in it, he said that the title of prodigal should better be applied to God in these parables than the Son. Because in the first two parables, the the found sheep and the found coin, really they're kind of crazy parables. I mean, really borderline insane. We find a, a, a search, a crazy search for a sheep and a crazy search for a lost coin. But even more than that, when they're found... There's a lavish, extravagant, ridiculous party that's thrown. You know, for the last couple of, like, for the last week or so, we've been missing the little remote control to, like, our Kindle Fire TV. And when I finally find it, I'm not going to invite my neighbors over. I'm not going to throw a party and have the whole neighborhood, hey, come on in, have some nachos. I found my remote control. They think I'm crazy. But that's exactly what we see. The shepherds. And the women do in the first two parables. They throw lavish parties because they're showing God's prodigal heart. He celebrates lavishly and extravagantly when the lost are found because of His great love. He celebrates ridiculously that the lost have been found and come home. And so after setting up the hearers with these first two parables and establishing the lavish, prodigal, extravagant love of God, we find the third parable, the longest parable, the parable of the son who was lost and is found. Now, in our individualistic Western society, we don't understand actually how scandalous this parable would have been to the original hearers. In Eastern culture, respect for parents and the honor of the family before the community were held in the highest of regard. So when the son comes to his father and says, Dad, give me my inheritance, essentially he said, Dad, I wish you were dead. Just give me your money. And then the son insulted his father even further by selling the property quickly and probably for well below what it was worth. Moreover, his Jewish family, he was part of a Jewish family and probably sold the property to Gentiles, which would have been grounds for excommunication from the community. And then the son further shames the family by rebelling. He becomes a glutton and a drunkard. And then when his money ran out, he further shames himself and his family by working with the most ceremonially unclean animal there was, the pig. So this rebellious son dishonored and shamed not only himself, 
He brought shame and disrepute upon his father and his entire family and the whole community. And the law of Moses had some pretty harsh words for a son that acted like this. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, starting in verse 18, it says, If a man has a stubborn and a rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of the city, this, is our, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. And then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. Now, now this seems barbaric to us. But we need to realize, again, this isn't talking about some naughty little child. This passage is addressing a, per- a persistently rebellious, antisocial young adult, as evidenced by the words in verse 20, glutton and drunkard. A son who endangers the well-being and integrity of himself, of his family, and of the community. A son just like the one in the parable that Jesus told. So when Jesus tells the parable and the Pharisees are listening to the parable about this rebellious and shameful son returning home, you know what the Pharisees are expecting? They're expecting that when this shameful and rebellious son makes it to the gates and the village elders are sitting there, they're going to give to this son exactly what he deserves. They expect that when this son approaches the city gates and sees the elders gathered there, they would know what the son had done. They would know how he had acted towards his father and his family. They would know his shame and his disobedience. And they would also know the law of Moses. And as he approached, they would have picked up stones. But what do we find the son received instead of the just punishment that he gave him? We find the beautiful, ridiculous, lavish, extravagant, scandalous love of our prodigal God who ensures that the lost can come home. Because friends, the father has not forgotten his son. It says that he's been actively seeking him. Just as the shepherd sought for the lost sheep and the woman the coin, the father seeking his son. Verse 20 says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father was watching. He was searching. He was searching for his son. The father was waiting. And verse 20 tells us that the unthinkable happens. The father ran to the son. Friends, you don't understand, in that culture, a father would wait to be addressed by the son and receive an indication of respect before he would respond to his son. But this father didn't wait for his son. He didn't wait for him. The father took the initiative. The father, in his lavish, prodigal love, ran to the son. And you need to understand, grown men in that culture did not run. To expose your ankles or legs was undignified. It was humiliating. I'm sorry, Joshua, you couldn't wear shorts. But to expose your legs and your ankles was undignified. It was humiliating because it was to look like a common slave. But friends, what did the father do? He pulled up his skirt and he ran to the son. He shamed himself. He humiliated himself. Why? Because the father knew the passage from Deuteronomy 2. And he knew what his son deserved. 
His son deserved justice. He deserved the just penalty for his rebellion and for the curse and for the shame that he brought upon himself and his family and his village. And just as Deuteronomy made clear, that death was to happen at the hands of the village elders who sat there at the gate and saw the son approaching. So as the son approached the village gate, when the elders picked up their stones and saw him coming, the father ran to him. Because of his great love, the father ran. And verse 20 says, when he got there, the father embraced him. Friends, the father wrapped his body around his son. And in embracing him, he absorbed his son's debt. The father accepted in himself the debt that the son could never repay. The father wrapped his body around his son, embracing him. And in doing so, he took on the shame of having such a son. The father didn't disown him, which is what the son deserved, but he received him not only as a slave, but embraced him as a son. And the father absorbed into himself the full shame of having a child like this, all because of the father's lavish and prodigal love. And friends, understand that the father also wrapped his body around his son, not just to absorb his son's debt, not just to absorb the son's shame, but to absorb the son's just punishment. The village elders had not only the right, but friends, they had the responsibility to unleash just judgment upon that son. And as the wayward son approached the gate, and as they picked up their stones to cast at the son, because the penalty was death, the father came running. The father came running because hear the gospel. The father humiliated himself, came running as a common servant, a slave. He embraced his child. And if the village elders had cast their stones of judgment at the son, the father's body would have absorbed each and every blow because he had wrapped himself around his son. The stones would not have struck the son. They would have struck the father. The father embraced his boy so that the just judgment of his son's sin would fall upon him and not upon his son. The father embraced the wayward child to absorb his debt, his shame, and his punishment, all because of the lavish and prodigal love of the father. And friends, this is the message of Christmas. This is the message of Christmas. Because as we try to come home for Christmas, as we try to come home, the just penalty of our sinful rebellion waits for us at the gate. Stones in hand, ready to strike. But who has come running to save us? Who has hiked up his robe, humiliating himself, exposing his legs like a common servant? God himself. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 tell us that Christmas declares Jesus emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, Christmas tells us that God came running for you. Friends, Christmas tells us that God humiliated Himself. He was born as a servant so that He could race outside the gates of the city, so that He could absorb the just punishment for our rebellion. And God embraces us 
and wraps Himself around us so that the stones, the punishment meant for me, fall upon Him. What I justly deserve, He freely takes. Beaten, bloody, dying, the humiliated God in Jesus Christ clings to you. He embraces you until the last stone has been cast, until the punishment is spent, and with his dying breath, Jesus declares, it is finished. The just penalty for our rebellion, it's finished. It's paid in full. The shame and the curse of our disobedience, it's finished. It's taken away in the humiliated God. And the unpayable price of our debt is paid in full. It's finished. Our exile is finished. We can be home for Christmas. And we're welcomed home as the Son was. Not just as a slave. He wasn't welcomed home just as a slave. Which would have been generous. He didn't deserve even to be a slave. But no, he doesn't just become a slave. He's welcomed as a son. He's given sandals and a ring, marks of a son, not of a slave. Because, friends, God in his lavish and prodigal love for us makes us sons and daughters. This parable speaks to us of Christmas. God humiliated himself at Christmas. He came running to us, being born as a baby to an unwed teenage mother laden in animals' feeding troughs. Shameful, scandalous. This parable speaks to us of the gospel. It tells us of the heart of our prodigal God who would humiliate himself, who in Jesus Christ would take into himself the penalty for our sins, absorbing our debt and our shame and paying for it in full so that you and I might be welcomed home for Christmas, not as slaves, not as servants, but as sons and as daughters. This, friends, this, is the lavish, extravagant, ridiculously disproportionate love that our prodigal God pours out on wayward children. And I ask you here today, or online, do you know this love? Do you know the love of the God who humiliated Himself and humbled Himself in Jesus Christ to seek you, to save you, to bear the punishment for your rebellion, to save you that you might become a son that you might become a daughter. And if you're ready to today, today's the day. Don't wait. Friends, come home for Christmas. At the end of today's service, I would love to talk with you and pray with you so that you might know the love of our prodigal God. If you're logged in online, I'd love if you reach out to me this week so that we could talk and so that you could know more of the love that God has. Because friends, God's love is the home to which we all long to go. God's love is home. So come home to God's love. And church, we need to make sure that we never forget the love of the Father is for us also. Hear that again. The love of the Father is for us also. You see, this is the third parable of three. And actually, the most significant difference between it and the other two parables is the introduction of a new character. Did you notice that in this last parable, there's another son introduced, the older son? The beginning of, verse of chapter 15 tells us that Jesus told these three parables to the Pharisees. Why? Look at 15, verses 1 and 2. The tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus, 
The Pharisees and scribes grumbled. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So these three parables were actually spoken to the Pharisees so that the Pharisees would understand the extravagant love of God because the Pharisees are the older brother. They're the older brother. They grumble and they complain about the lavish, extravagant, disproportionate love that Jesus was giving to these tax collectors and sinners. The parable reveals that the older brother, much like the Pharisees, and sometimes like us, show that we can be physically close, but still really far from God. We might be physically close, but still far from God, because the older brother and the Pharisees were still estranged from the father's love, weren't they? The younger brother had been lost to his father in immorality, but the older brother was lost to his father in self-morality. The younger brother had been separated from his father by unrighteousness. The older brother was separated from the love of the father by self-righteousness. Friends, understand that religion can separate us from the father just as much as irreligion. Our goodness can separate us from the father just as much as our badness. Because both the younger brother and also the older brother in the parable needed to come home for Christmas. They both needed to come home to the father's love. So just as the father humiliated himself and ran to the younger son, we watch the father humiliate himself a second time in this parable. Verse 28. The older brother was angry and refused to go in. The father came out and entreated him. Now the older brother is acting shamefully towards the father, just like the younger brother acted shamefully. He acts just as shamefully, but because of the father's great love, what does the father do? He runs to him. He runs to him. Just as the father humiliated himself to run to the younger son, he runs to the older son, seeks him as well because of his prodigal love. Because the older brother is just as lost. He's just as estranged from the father's love. The older brother needs to come home for Christmas just as much as the younger. Because we can be close to God, but still refuse to come home to His love. You see, the older brother is not in the Father's love. What's he doing? He stands in judgment on the Father's love, doesn't he? He questions the Father's decisions. He challenges the Father's goodness. He refuses to enter into the Father's joy. And church, maybe you're here today and you're doing the same thing. Maybe you're somebody who's always been in church. You're often here, whenever the doors are open. You grew up in church. You've been near the Father for a long time. But now something or some things have made you reluctant to truly trust Him and come home. Maybe you're bitter because of His action or His inaction on your behalf. Maybe you're critical of His conduct. Maybe you're skeptical of His intentions. And you refuse to come home because you don't trust His love. Friends, Because of his great and prodigal love, the father humiliated himself to run to the younger son, and he humiliates himself also to run to us, the older son. He's seeking out the Pharisees. He's seeking us out. And he's inviting us all to come home for Christmas. The only question is, will you? The parable is open-ended. Do you notice there's no resolution at the end? We don't get an answer. What did the older son do? Because, friends, the question is a question for you. 
How will you respond to the prodigal, lavish, extravagantly wasteful love of God? The Father in His love has come seeking you today. So what stops you from coming in and joining the celebration? What stops you from saying, I'll be home for Christmas? Let's pray. Father, draw our hearts home. Assure us of the depth of your love, which is vast beyond all measure. Demonstrated to us most perfectly in Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, who became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, who wrapped himself around us, absorbing our debt and our shame and our penalty. Assure us of your love. May we trust your love and draw us and many home for Christmas this year. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we close in worship.